Well, let's talk about relationships. We've been doing a sermon series called Indomitable Faith, Indomitable Faith, and it's based on the book of 2 Corinthians, wanting to strengthen our faith. Well, if you're going to be a person of faith, you've got to make sure your relationships are godly, biblical relationships. The world, of course, is very concerned about relationships as well. I just did a, a quick little Google search. I was just curious. If I type in like relationships, I think it was relational health or something like that into Google, the number of zeros that came up were shocking. There was like 2 billion results just from my little search. Now, if you go online, you can find information on relation, how to relate to your, your employer, your employees. You can find information on how to relate to your spouse, your children, society. Lots and lots of blogs, newspaper columns, all sorts of information about relationships. You want to, maybe you're lonely and you're looking for a spouse and you want to know like, how does it all work and how do I best position myself for that? There's, there's all kinds of information out there about marriage and dating and relationships. And by the way, little sidebar, we had something kind of exciting happen in our family this week. My favorite son of the week, at least, um, decided to get down on one knee and to ask the lovely Julia Jirachi to be his wife. And we were shocked that she said yes. Um, not really, not really. He, she's 20 years old and we have emails going back to when she was 12, emailing him, do you like me? Do you know that I like you? And he'd respond like, oh, so it's true. <laughs> But for the last few years, they've been dating and have seen fit to get married. So we're super excited about that. I think June 27th is the date, COVID permitting. And um, they're, a, they're a godly couple. We love Julie. Obviously, I love my son, Levi. He's a godly man, wise beyond his years. Super thankful for him. And we're looking forward to celebrating that. My wife and I pray that the Lord would not give us any children if it wasn't within his sovereign plan to save them and help them to grow in the faith. And we're thankful that we have five children that love the Lord and faithfully serve him. Our oldest son, Josiah, was married a couple years ago. He's helping to plant a church in Kitchener with his wife. And we're looking forward to what God has in store for the, the rest of the gang. But we're thankful for that. And I know many of you are interested in that because you know them. So that's just a little, a little personal stuff I wanted to share with you today. We're, we're thankful for that. But ultimately, the place for us to go if we want to figure out how to conduct ourselves in relationships is this book. The Bible is the best when it comes to information and teaching on relationships. And the text that we have found ourselves in as we've studied through this book sequentially is 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 14 through to chapter 7, verse 1. So, uh, you probably know that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers were added centuries later. I kind of wish they'd push chapter 6 forward a verse because really right through to chapter 7 verse 1 is all one unit helping us to understand something really important about relationships. And so the big idea as we're about to enter into this text, and maybe this is just a helpful but simple way to put it out there, is that when, when it comes to the question of how do we relate to others, essentially what the Word of God teaches us is that we should relate to others as God relates to others. Simple as that. We should relate to others as God relates to others. So if a person is God's enemy, they're your enemy. 
If a person is God's friend, they're your friend. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians have forgotten this. And they are best friends with the enemies of God. They think that's, that's appropriate. They're dating the enemies of God. They're in business with the enemies of God. They're married to the enemies of God. And this is not God's plan for his people. In fact, the word of God teaches us that relationships are fundamentally about portraying the holiness of God and the way that we interact with others. And so you'll see here in this text, a bit of a call to display holiness by practicing biblical separation from partnerships and activities that defile the work of the gospel in us and manifested through his people. So how do we relate to others as God, God relates to others? A couple things. The first one, which will take up most of our time, is this. We must take care to avoid unequal relationships. Here's what it says in the word of God. Do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. For what partnership has, has righteousness with lawlessness? Now you're going to notice five contrasts here. What partnership has Righteousness with lawlessness, what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Let's talk about what this doesn't mean. This passage is not a ban on associating with all lost people. This, this passage isn't to say, well, I got a job, but unbelievers work there, so I'm not going to go to work. It's not to say, well, my neighbor over the fence is an unbeliever, so I don't even look their direction. It's not to say that we don't share our faith, that we're not invitational, that we're not loving, that we're not kind and friendly to lost people. So it's not that. Nor is it a call to abandon a marriage to a lost person. So let's suppose that you were married, and at some later date, you became a Christian. And you love the Lord, but your spouse doesn't love the Lord. So you're thinking, well, is it right for me to be in this relationship? The Bible says I shouldn't be unequally yoked. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, the early church confronted that issue, and, or was confronted with that issue, and their response was, no, stay married. And seek to sanctify that marriage, seek to be light, salt, and grace and all that to that lost person. So it's not a call to abandon a marriage that you're in if your spouse isn't a believer. But the passage does say we should not be unequally yoked. Now, we're primarily Westerners raised in big cities, and often we run into these agricultural metaphors or analogies in scripture. And we're like, I don't even know what that means. So just let's remind ourselves, what, is, what does yoked mean? So in ancient times, actually not even that long ago before the invention of you know, the internal combustion engine and tractors and all that kind of thing, people would plow their field with oxen or with a pair of mules. You'd never see a farmer out there with uh, an oxen on one side and his goat on the other trying to plow the field. You'd never see a farmer with his mule and a, and a chicken you know, yoked together. They'd be going in circles. It just wouldn't work. There's a clear imbalance. These are two different species like they just don't they don't go together they can't function together you would try to find two animals that were equal 
And this is the imagery that God uses to instruct his people that we should not be unequally in an imbalanced way yoked to unbelievers. So this is not a ban on being friendly, being evangelistic, being loving to unbelievers, but it is a ban on entering into close, reliant relationships with lost people. This means that Christians who want to obey the scripture don't start businesses with lost people where there's a 50-50 yoking. If you want to work for an unbeliever, go for it. If you want to be a 10 or 20% owner of the company, go for it. Or if you want to be the 90% owner of the company, go for it. But Christians don't go into 50-50 business partnerships with lost people. Christian people who want to be true to the word of God do not marry lost people. Thinking, well, you know, she's cute. We like the same movies. We enjoy the same food. She seems to be willing. Why not? It worked for my friend. They have a good marriage. No, Christians are not foolish like this. Biblical Christians understand that Christians marry Christians. Let's say you're starting a band. You're going to go on the road, make lots of money as a rock star. Well, if you're mindset is I want to represent Christ and the purposes of, this, of his kingdom. Why would you invite a bunch of unbelievers to be in your band? Why would you yoke yourselves to unbelievers where now you're subservient to their desires, their wishes, their ethical perspectives? If you're in competitions where it's required, you know, some sports aren't quite like this, but there's other sports where, you know, maybe there's uh, some sort of an, an agreement a subservient agreement where you, you have to yoke yourself to an unbeliever. And, and, and part of that process is that, well, you, you can't go to church anymore and you can't serve in your community. You got to be on the road all the time. And, you know, you're going to go where they go and they're going to tell you what to, why would you yoke yourself to an unbeliever that way so that they now have sway and say over how you live your life and how you conduct yourself when it comes to Christian worship or Christian service? Christians understand that if there's a relationship within which the other person has leverage over their financial decisions or their spiritual decisions or their marital decisions or their sexual decisions or their ethical decisions, they back out of those kind of relationships. This is what it means not to be equal partners with lost people. But if you choose to foolishly become equal partners, unequally yoked with lost people, inevitably you will be forced to compromise. You will be. It might be very subtle. It might take place progressively over an extended period of time, but you will be forced eventually to compromise. And so we need to be careful about this. There's five contrasts in the text. So look at the text. The first contrast, just to help us to understand this, is between righteousness and lawlessness. So if we're you know, sometimes we read the word of God and we're like, oh, it says don't be unequally yoked, but what does that really mean? You know, it's a little vague. It's kind of metaphorical. It's an analogy. So we start to find loopholes. Well, <laughs> this passage doesn't allow that because it presents us with five contrasts, which you'll all understood, five things that just don't go together. So the first one is righteousness doesn't go together with lawlessness. Righteousness doesn't go together with lawlessness. Now, lawlessness here is not to be understood as civil law, but certainly moral law. So if you're a police officer 
know, there's nothing more disturbing than, let's say, a, a dirty cop. He, he, he has a badge. He's supposed to uphold the law, but he's you know, maybe selling drugs behind the scenes or acting nepotistically with his friends. There's nothing worse than a corrupt judge that refuses to uphold the law. We understand these things, they don't go together. Righteousness and lawlessness are in two different camps. And then the second analogy is light and darkness. Two different camps. One helps you see, one takes your vision from you. How about this one? Christ and Belial. Belial is one of the names for the devil. How close do you think Christ and the devil are? Pretty close? You think they hang out on Friday nights and play pool? Think they're sort of buddies. We compete a little bit. We have different agendas, but you know, we're okay. We're, we get along. No, they're, they're opposite ends of the spectrum. How about the believer and the unbeliever? The text says they have different eternal portions. They have different eternal destinies. The, the believer is destined to eternity within the kingdom of God, heaven, eternal life. The unbeliever is destined to hell and damnation. The fifth contrast is the temple of God and the temple of idols. This is a contrast between fake worship and authentic worship. They're, they're two different things. And all of these five contrasts are meant to drive home this idea that Christians and unbelievers have no business being in fellowship or partnership with one another. The Christian is not to be unequally yoked to the unbeliever any more than Christ has an interest in hanging out with the devil and pretending that there aren't differences. No believer would argue that these five things don't mix. So why is it then that many people, even in the Christian church today, feel comfortable going into equal business relationships with lost people why is it that so many Christian young people, having looked high and low, far and wide for the perfect Christian spouse, throw up their hands and say, well, they don't exist. So I'm going to start dating and subsequently marrying a lost person. Why is this? Well, to a large degree, it's because people often find their identity in their earthly oneness. Wow, we, we like to go to the same places. We have kind of the same values. We, well, they believe in God. So isn't that enough? They do not understand the vertical nature of a Christian marriage, that Christ must be at the center, that marriage at its most basic level is a portrayal of the gospel. The husband portrays Christ and the wife portrays the church. That's the most basic definition of the gospel, of Christian marriage. It reflects the gospel. Any husband that doesn't understand that his role is to re reflect Christ to his wife and family doesn't understand Christian marriage. And any wife that doesn't understand that her role is to reflect Christ to the church doesn't understand Christian marriage. This is basic teaching found in the epistle to the Ephesians. Why is it that when you talk to or believers, Christian people at times, and you say, hey, um, so who, who are your best friends? Oh, my best friend is this person over here. Went to high school together. We've known each other for years. Oh, are they a Christian? Oh, no, they're not a Christian, but they're my best friend. Oh, really? 
So you're, you're best friends with someone that doesn't worship your God, is committed to lawlessness rather than righteousness, is a child of the darkness rather than light. Like what, what's the basis of your fellowship, may I ask? Sentimentality? Some misguided loyalty? Where's Christ in the relationship? The Bible explicitly forbids Christians from being unequally yoked to non-Christians. Now, the underlying problem ultimately, as the text is going to demonstrate, is a misunderstanding, an inability to actually understand your identity. So to those of you that are here that are Christians, let's talk for a moment about your identity. Who are you? Like, well, I'm a human. Okay, but beyond that, what are you? Who are you? Oh, my name's Aaron. But beyond that, who are you? Um, I'm a pastor. But beyond that, like, who are you? Check out, check out the text. What does the text say? It says, for we are the temple of the living God. Wow. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's the application. Therefore, go out from their midst and be, let's hear all of you say the next word so it's not just in my head, and be what? Separate. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then... I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So guess what, church? You're more than just a set of beliefs. I think there's some Christians out there that think, well, I'm a Christian because I believe the right thing. So what's a Christian? Well, someone that believes the right thing. Anything else? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just believe the right thing. Well, believing the right thing is kind of important. But one of the things you need to believe and understand that you're a temple of the living God. Frankly, I find that kind of intimidating. I'm just a human being, but somehow I'm a temple of the living God. Wow. The living God lives in this little guy. Lives in you. That affects my understanding of who I am. I'm a temple of a living God. And this is why the temple of the living God cannot have warm fellowship with someone who's not part of the temple of a living God. It's like Jesus hanging out with the devil on Friday nights. It's like righteousness associated with lawlessness. It's like light and dark somehow trying to get along at the same. They don't, they can't. They can't. Now a a plea, a pastoral plea, because I've been pastoring for a long time, 27 years, I think. And I've seen this a lot in the church where we have wonderful young people that we've invested in and their parents have invested in. They've prayed for their children and they love their children. And the time comes when their children start to date or start to marry lost people. And the parent sits back and says, I I don't really want to say anything because this might be a good evangelistic opportunity or I don't want my kid to feel awkward or the worst excuse of all as well, mom and dad, we did it too. So we have people that 
you know, unbeliever dates believer. They get married by God's grace. One gets saved. So now they're both saved. And we're like, whew, well, it worked for us. So we can't say anything. You know, the best thing you can do to your, for your child, if that's your decision, if that's your story, apologize for it. Let them know it was wrong. It was a bad move. It was a stupid decision. Shouldn't have done it by God's grace. He got us through it. But it's, it's, it was wrong. Like verbalize it to your kids and to do everything within your power to encourage and beseech and to instruct your children. If you are a Christian, do not marry people who are not born again, mature followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a direct violation of the word of God and it's unacceptable for the people of God. I've even said to my kids, if you marry an unbeliever, I will not attend your wedding. Because you know what? I'm not a guest. I'm a witness to a covenant. That's what you are at a wedding. You're a witness to a covenant. And if you show up, you are by definition of your presence endorsing that covenant. And I'm not going to permit or encourage you to do something that's wrong. It's hard. It's very hard. But it's the right thing to do. The reason we separate from cozy relationships with the world is because we are the temple of a living God. And this is what, by the way, this is a great little passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, where it says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Lest you forget how incredible God is. God dwells in like unapproachable light. I have some light in front of me. I can look into them. I wouldn't want to look in them for very long. God is so bright. I would, I would cower in his presence. I'd just be snuffed out in all likelihood in his, the fullness of his presence. God, God is that holy. God is that pure. And you are his temple. I'm his temple. So the, the, the expectations are pretty high. So we can think about this in a very practical way in terms of levels of separation, because many of you are probably thinking right now, okay, so I, I know a lot of people. I know some really, really bad people, some kind of bad people, some sort of good people and some awesome people. So how do I relate to all of these kinds of people? So let me give you just very practically some levels of separation. So first, and I'll give them to you in using four C's, words that start with a C just to help to remember. So first of all, how do I relate to a very dangerous person? What is my responsibility as a Christian um, let's say I was sexually molested, I was abused, or I know of a, a person that has nefarious intent around my family or my children or in our church. Do I have to sort of, you know, be Christ-like and continue to associate with a person like that? No, you cut them off. That's the first word. You cut them off. There's nothing wrong with cutting off someone who's a dangerous person that seeks to bring disrepute to the church, danger to your family, maybe even attempt to take your own life. Now, Obviously, this isn't going to happen too often, but I do run into Christians on occasion who have experienced past abuse by someone who's not repentant. They would love to continue to abuse their victims, and they, they wrestle. Like, as a Christian, am I responsible to continue to associate with an abusive person? No, you're not. Rarity, but no, you're not. How about people that are sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're not saved, but, you know, they're more or less safe. Well, to them, you can be cordial, meaning that you should be friendly, you should be loving, 
you should be helpful, you should be generous, you should be invitational, you should seek to meet their needs. If their lawnmower breaks down, lend them yours. This is the majority of the world. We're going to be loving and friendly and conscientious to our neighbors, but we're never going to become their best friends because we're the temple of the living God and they're enemies of God. Now, moving into the Christian camp, we have a lot of Christians out there that, you know, have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they hold to some doctrinal falsehoods. They're maybe not committed to Christ, really. They have some unconfessed sin in their lives. They seem to be okay with that. To people like that, we can be caring, but we should also be cautious. Because while we might still reckon them as a brother or sister in Christ, warm fellowship isn't possible unless someone is living in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the prime applications of this is to to marriage. Um, When we talk about being unequally yoked or equally yoked, to those of you that are unmarried, maybe married at some point in the near future, it's not enough just to find someone that says I'm a Christian. It's not enough. You want to find someone that's a maturing Christian or better yet, a mature Christian. Someone that's actually committed to participating in the life of the church, committed to the spiritual disciplines, is committed to living a fruitful life. You might be friendly to someone who's not quite there, but you want to be careful in terms of how far you take that relationship. And then the fourth and best kind of relationship is a covenantal relationship. This is the relationship that we have with other obedient followers with whom we can have warm fellowship, go into business together, get married to, and so forth, and so on. Now, in all of these relationships, we're demonstrating influence and we're demonstrating love. You might say, well, how can you love someone by cutting them off? Tough love. How can you love someone by cutting them off? Protective love for others. You're demonstrating love in all of these relationships and you're demonstrating influence. So the text is very clear. One of the ways that we relate to others as God relates to others is not being unequally yoked. Secondly, in chapter seven, verse one, we take care to avoid impurity. So this is how we demonstrate holiness in our relationships. The Bible says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion, This refers to progressive sanctification in the fear of God. Lots of meat there for us to think about. Let me just park on a few. First of all, we're called to remember God's promises. It is so, so vital that we spend a great deal of our mental time remembering the promises of God. We need to regularly think about our eternal hope. Where are you going? one day soon. What are the promises of God? What does God say to you when you're anxious, when you're worrisome, when you're fearful, when you're dying, when you're about to disobey the government? What are the promises of God and how do they affect your emotions and your mindset and your practical response? We need to fixate on those things. Never forget the promises of God. Never take our eyes off the promises of God. When we do take our eyes off the promises of God, you know what happens? We get very clingy to life. Oh man, I got to protect myself. Got to protect my reputation. Got to protect my 
job, my business. Don't want people to call me names or think I'm foolish. Wouldn't want to ever lose any of my money or my, my influence. We become very, very, very protective, don't we? Very clingy. And we need to be reminded, you know, God says things in his words like, in his word, like we, we, we come into the world with nothing, we leave with nothing in 1 Timothy. We, we come into the world basically naked and we leave naked. It reminds us of our eternal hope, that we have the hope of salvation. It reminds us that Christ will continue to do a good work unto the day of completion, Philippians 1, 6. The, the promises of God that hold us tight. It's so important that we think a lot about the promises of God. But unfortunately, many of us are kind of like domesticated dogs. We have dogs at our house. We have, a, we have three dogs, actually. And um, one of them is our indoor dog. It's a little black and white seven-year-old Shih Tzu. And you know, the thing probably weighs, I don't know, 15 pounds or something like that. And you know what they're like. They're kind of little black, fluffy things. Well, when we, when we got this dog we thought, well, it'd be kind of neat to do a little research on the history of this breed. So we punched it in and this Wikipedia article came up. I think it's still up. You could check this out. And you're reading through it and it says something like, oh, the, the Shih Tzu, keep in mind, it's about this big and it's this little fluffy thing, is one of the modern dog species that's closest related to the gray wolf. Really? The gray wolf. How about like a German shepherd or something? The gray wolf, really? So not very gray wolf-like at all. But every once in a while, you see a little bit of gray wolf in our little fluffy dog. So you'll open the door and you'll let it outside in the morning. It'll run out. And then quickly run back in. Maybe you've been around domestic dogs and... You know, you've been in Algonquin Park or someplace, and a lot, a lot, a lot of this is in Essex County. You hear like the, the howl of a coyote, and your dog tries to mimic that in some way. It's like the gray wolf coming out, right? And I bet you if you got into the mind of the average dog, every once in a while they think to themselves, you know what? I'd like to bust out of this place. I'd like to get out and run with the pack. You know, take down a caribou or two, right? Live wild. Go back to our... Our ancestors, a lot of Christians are like that. I, I want to persevere. I want to stand big for the Lord. I want, to, I want to live a sacrificial life. I want to be a man of great faith. And then we run outside. Woo, 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 woo. Oh, you're going to get a million dollar fine if you open up your church. We run back in, right? And our little dog at the end of the day, no matter how brave and tough it tries to posture itself, no matter how much gray wolf is in it, it's very domesticated. You know what it really likes? It likes being inside in its little dog bed eating dry kibble. That's what it likes. And it's going to spend the rest of its life doing that, essentially being useless. You know, for, for the Christian, many of us find ourselves now, we have this desire to be bold and passionate for Christ, but we like our little beds and our dry kibble. We're just used to that. Christ is calling us to set, us, to, to, to set aside our creature comforts and to fixate upon the promises of God which will inform our vision and our trajectory and our decisions and our response fearlessly. 
What do do we have to be afraid of if God is on our side? We're told here in the text that we're beloved. That's a pretty precious and special term. Nothing can take that away. We are loved by God. We try as best as we can to remind our church of this every week when we say, you are loved. Even if you're not necessarily feeling loved by others, you are loved by God. You are one of his beloved And he has you firm within his grasp. This is a precious thing which should inform the way we live. We're told to stay clean, to be ruthless in getting rid of defilement, not to be sleepy believers, to always press on. Are we ever going to be perfect? No, but we're going to try. We're going to keep trying. Imagine if you were a a great athlete, you know, you've lifted more weight than anybody in the world. You have the world record. You're the world heavyweight, you know, wrestling champion, which is all fake anyway, but let's suppose it wasn't. Or you had in your possession the Stanley Cup or you'd won the World Series. Would you ever say, well, whatever, we don't don't need to try any harder. I'm I'm number one. You always realize, okay, we might be number one in the eyes of the world, but we can do better. Now, you might be the most godly person in our church. One of you is. Someone here is the most godly person in our church. But you never say, well, I'm the most godly person in the church now. I'm like 10 times more godly than Pastor Aaron. So I don't need to work on it anymore. No, you, you continue to seek to grow in the Christian faith. The text talks about completion. Ultimately, our sanctification is not complete till we get to heaven. Not complete till we get to heaven. We keep seeking to be faithful to the Lord, manifesting the spiritual gifts, being faithful to the word of God, taking a stand for Christ, being faithful in our witness, faithful in our worship. We never give up. We never surrender. We never say uncle. We keep pressing forward and pressing on to the high calling that Christ has bestowed upon his beloved, his church. If you understand this, if you understand your identity, it will affect your priorities and your priorities will affect your actions. Brothers and sisters, you're a citizen of the heavenly kingdom of God. And we pray in the Lord's prayer, may your kingdom come. How does God's kingdom come? Through the faithful obedience of his people. As we live out the virtues and values and share the message of the kingdom of God. We are warriors for Christ with God at the helm. And we need to make sure that our relational choices reflect that. That in the way we interact with people, we understand we are temples of the living God. And in our daily lives, we will commit ourselves to the ongoing pursuit of holiness because that is what God has called us to do. And as we do this, we trust that God will bless our relationships. He will expand our numbers and that God will be glorified through our short lives. 